listening to Fed by Ravens with Matt and Adam. Good morning, Matt. Good morning, Adam. Welcome to day 127 and 128 of Reading Through the Bible. We want to welcome everybody to the oral tradition. For thousands of years, the stories of our people, the stories of God have been passed down through talking about them, through talking about the words that he's given us. So that's what we're doing. We're glad you're with us. And I started to get excited because we're in the fifth month. And, you know, I was like, are we almost halfway done? But then I realized we got to get through May and then June, and then we'll be halfway there. But we are closer to halfway than we are from the beginning. Yes. So celebrate that. But it's just, it's a good story, man. I mean, like this is... Yeah, it is. We've been talking about the... I got you mid-drink. Wow. We've been talking about the... Oh, yeah. Our Old Testament reading. What, what do, we, what do you want? Just say Judges. Judges. Yeah, that's where we're at today. Okay. That's what I want. Okay. I just was waiting for the sweet music. Our Old yeah. Testament reading for today is yes. Judges, chapter 6 through chapter 8. I can't read minds. Well, you better learn. This is going to last <laughs> another eight months. You better learn to read minds, Matt. So... We met our good friends, the deliverers, the saviors, the judges that would relieve God's people in their disobedience. We mm-hmm. met, uh, who did we meet? Othniel, Ehud, uh, Shamgar, Shamgar. Yep. And, and Deborah and Barak. Deborah, yeah, and potentially her husband Barak. And mm-hmm. so they, uh, the people of God are caught for eight years in slavery. They get rest for 40 through Othniel. 18 years to, uh, before Ehud steps up, and they get 80 years of rest. Mm-hmm. 20 years before Deborah and Barak, and they get 40 years. And now we meet the sweet Gideon. Yeah, so again, the cycle continues. Yep. Uh, they start to do evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gives them over to the hand of Midian for seven years. Uh this is interesting because Midian and also apparently the Amalekites are helping them out. And then also another thing is um, at this point, the Midianites and the Ishmaelites have kind of uh, intermingled to a point that they're kind of considered the same. Yeah. And so they're kind of just all these wandering nomadic people that are raiders. Like they don't plant, they don't harvest, they just go and raid other places right. and uh, steal. And so... They are coming in from the east side of the Jordan. It looks like that they're traveling in through the territory of Gad, completely unopposed, right. crossing the river, going through the heart of Canaan and all the way down into the south of Judah to Gaza and taking whatever they want and leaving. And, and so how they're described is like locusts. Mm-hmm. Because they are nomadic people, the enemy here, Midianites, are nomads, so mm-hmm. they can pitch a tent anywhere they're just coming down and they're eating everything they're just they're only waiting for seven years in a row they'd come down when the crops were ready pick all the crops harvest everything take all the goats and take all the donkeys and sheep help themselves to anything they want basically they're the the bullies who just walk in and take your lunch mm-hmm. and the people of god have gotten used to this when yes. we find gideon but before uh, gideon is even mentioned god does send a prophet yeah. Because uh, they finally, it takes seven years, but they finally the cry out. Mention of a prophet. Right. So a prophet, and he doesn't have a name. Mm-hmm. He reminds them of what God had done through Egypt, 
how he saved them. He says, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. And then that's the end of the prophet. And, um, but the people did cry out. That's why the prophet came. Mm-hmm. But seven years, I just, I'm always thinking we get, we get caught in our sin and we forget that an option is to cry out to the Lord that he's faithful, he's merciful, he wants us mm-hmm. to uh, engage life with him. So God sends a prophet. And then this angel of the Lord appears to Gideon, who, I'll just make this point, the angel finds Gideon hiding in a wine press, thrashing uh, the grain. Because it's so loud, he's trying to do it secretly because he doesn't want the Midianites to see that he's harvesting something. And and that just reminded me and made me think of what we do. You know, we make all these agreements and arrangements in our lives. Like, it's not cool that you're threshing in a hidden wine press place because you're so scared of the enemy. That's not life. Yeah, so the idea is, at this point, they've become so accustomed to the raiding that they've created little uh, strongholds in the mountains and caves, like basically little hidey holes that they could go in during the harvest. Hidey holes. And they would, they would take their, whenever they would have a harvest, they knew, okay, they're, they're going to come and find us, and if they find any wheat anywhere, any grain anywhere, they're going to just take it from us. So that's why he's hiding in this wine press trying to keep the sound down and like be like okay uh, we're going to just take what we can get and this is the what how I mean, we have I, to live yeah it's like the bully who says don't come down this street anymore but yeah. it's the way to school and now you're like going 5 miles out of your way cuz you're scared he's going to mm-hmm. see you yeah they're totally living out of fear and because s- of their sin because they just yes. don't cry out to the lord and so this is the scene where the angel walks in and says the lord is with you o mighty man of valor it's like, are you joking? Yes. And he actually kind of says, are you joking? Because yeah. I'm the weakest, like I'm in the weakest clan of the weakest tribe. I'm the weakest son of my family. Yeah. And he says, please, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us saying, did not the Lord bring us out from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us to the hand of the Midian, to uh, the hand of Midian. So even this faith is weak. He's totally despairing and kind of blaming God as if God just left them for no reason. Yeah. and uh, Oh, the Lord's with me? Then where is he? It's like, dude. Which we will later find out that there's like his own dad has set up the town's altars right. to Baal and Asherah. Right. Like, <laughs> we'll find that out pretty soon. Um, but the angel says to him, you're going to uh, save Israel. You ready? And he's like, I can't do that. And then we get right into the um, testing, right? Or is there anything in between where he's asking for a sign? Well, he says, um, I'll be with you and you'll strike the Midianites as one man. And he says, uh, you have to show me a sign. Like, please do not depart from here until um, I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. Oh, that's right. And so he, so Gideon runs in. He gets, he prepares a young goat some unleavened cakes, and get some flour. So he kind of like has like an idea of like, okay, this might be like... How are you supposed to treat an angel? An angel or a messenger of the Lord. Um, okay, let me... I've learned some things from the, the Levites. Let me see. Let me see what I can get. So he get, brings nice. all this stuff to him. And it's funny, like you start to think like, oh, this probably took a little bit mm-hmm. of time. So the angel's just chilling in the wine press right. for like an hour or more or so probably several couple hours yeah um and uh 
He shows back up, gives him the stuff. This and, is the, yeah, the part I like. And the angel says, put it on the rock. Pour it out. Yeah. Put the meat, pour it out on this rock. And then touches it with his staff. So he has a staff. Touches it. And it gets devoured in flame, which is really symbolic of God receiving his offering. Mm-hmm. Like it's like a burnt offering being restored to that place. Yes. That's how I read it. It's a burnt offering. And it's also reminiscent to me of the... Uh, the fiery bush that Moses encounters. Oh, how, how is that? Just because it's a, it's a small symbol. Cause like these guys are so removed from the old mm-hmm. stories. And so it was the presence of God meeting him in fire okay. and in nature and stuff like that. Cool. And kind of meeting him in a moment of weakness. Well, I wonder the presence if... of the Lord and his reaction to that yeah. is he falls on his face and is like, please do not kill me. Gideon does? Yeah, he says, peace be to you. Oh, he, like, yeah. he falls, he's like, uh, alas, I've seen, for I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face, but the Lord said to him, peace be to you, do not fear, you shall not die. Yeah. So like, obviously, Gideon was like, oh no. Okay, well maybe all of the sacrificial system goes back to the burning bush. Yeah, probably. The purity and the blessing, the presence of the Lord, mm-hmm. along with a lot of other things. I just figured it was like a place restoring worship to God. Yeah, and then probably, asking yeah. forgiveness and realizing his position, mm-hmm. and so anyway, Gideon does uh, kind of bow, but then still he has this weak kind of demoralized spirit, weak character. Yeah. So the Lord then uh, asks him. He's like, "Okay, take your father's bull and your second bull, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the Asherah pole that stands beside it." and build an altar to the Lord and sacrifice the bulls there. And he's like, okay, but he does it at, like, at night. Right, yeah. He's too scared to do it during the day. Yeah, he's like, I'll do that at night when everyone's asleep. Because the, no whole, find out. the whole town is stuck in this idolatrous superstition where you have to have uh, the female and male counterparts of basically fertility gods mm-hmm. to bless the land and to bless your clan. Bless the land, bless the clan. And, uh, and so he doesn't want to mess with any of that because he knows he's going to uh, stir up wrath and confusion against him. And then um, he, he does it at night, and he does. People do get mad, but his dad calls him, um, his dad kind of steps up and calls him Jerubabel. Yes. Jerubabel. And that means let Baal contend for himself. So his dad's like, look, if he messed with him, let Baal take care of him. Yeah. Like, cause, and probably he doesn't want to, kill his son mm-hmm. and so he like talks sense into everybody like look if he messed with Baal Baal will can take care mm-hmm. of himself and that that's kind of satiates everybody and it also gives me insight because later we're going to talk more about Gideon here Gideon figures out how to be a little wily yes and clever in talking to people so we see his dad calling him let Baal contend for himself and that becomes his name right Jerubbabel mm-hmm. And uh, what's interesting, too, I was thinking about is his dad also is kind of thinking, okay, it's been seven years, and these gods have done nothing for us. Yeah, for seven years, it's been um, So, you know what? Texas. Let's just see what happens. And if these gods are real, then let them kill my son. Otherwise, let's right. see what the Lord does. Right, so the enemy had crossed the Jordan, stayed in Jezreel. They're way too deep. No one is taking uh, ownership. You start to see the state of the tribes... No one's helping each other. Like, the tribes aren't working together. They're, 
all just kind of taking care of themselves. Yeah, and again, so now they're in Jezreel, which Jezreel is up north, and I think that's in like the Naphtali region. Okay. If I'm, if I'm correct, I think so. And so uh, Gideon, then the Lord basically says, "You're going to, you're going to be clothed in the spirit and." And uh, defeat the Midianites. Mm-hmm. And he has a hard time understanding this. He's like, okay, I can't really believe this. I need to know for sure that you're with me. Like, it's yeah. not enough for... God says, I'm with you. And uh, Gideon's like, okay, can I can I get some assurance here? Mm-hmm. And you see this a little bit with Barak. And you're starting to see this with the leaders of God's people. They're, they're unable to just... They're reluctant. Yeah, they're reluctant to just hear an angel say, the Lord's with you. Mm-hmm. And so he says, I'm going to put out a fleece, and um, if it's wet the next morning and nothing else is wet around it, I'll know. So it happens, the fleece collects tons of water, he wrings it out, great. But then he asks for a kind of a miraculous thing the next night. He mm-hmm. says, well, can you allow the water and everything... Uh, everything around the fleece to be wet and let the fleece be totally dry. Mm-hmm. And God does that. So God gives his word and keeps it to assure Gideon, I'm going to be with you. Yeah. And I think sometimes God does that for, you know what I mean? Like sometimes God will do that for us when we've been far away or we're coming to him. He will give us assurances or answers to prayers and things like, okay, now I know to assure us, mm-hmm. but you should be assured also he will, uh, at least what we'll see is God always reminds us that it wasn't us that got the victory. Mm-hmm. So he goes in with us, we're assured of that, and then he'll make sure we're assured, or he'll get our assurances that we recognize it's all his work. Yes. So, because um, an evil generation always looks for a sign, mm-hmm. is what Jesus says. So Gideon, who's now called Jerubbabel, um, needed to make it clear, well, that God's going to be with him. And mm-hmm. then he goes, okay. So then he goes out and he tells everybody, let's fight. Yeah. So he gets Manasseh, Asher, Zebulon, and Naphtali to fight with him. And it's about 30,000 men, right? Uh, yes, yes. I already know. I'm not. That's a fake question. Yes. Um, it, it's like when God said to Adam in the garden, where are you? It's just a chance to be honest. So okay. Cool. It's about 30,000 men, right, Matt? Yes. Good. Or you could have said, I don't know. And I said, yes, it is. All right, so he takes the army out, and he's like, great, we're going to go fight. And then God says, all right, uh, now that you tested me with the fleece, I'm going to test you. Tell everybody who's scared and about fighting to leave. Which is interesting, because this is actually written in uh, Leviticus, and I think yes. in Deuteronomy, about like if anyone is... Uh, I know, it's n- not a draft. It's yeah. not like you must go fight. If, anyone, if anyone's scared, let them stay home. Like, don't make them go. I know. Isn't it interesting? So it's cool. Like, God kind of brings that back. Like, he brings that back. And he's like, look, they're scared. Tell them to go home. Well, 22,000 left. <laughs> yeah, and there's 10,000 left. <laughs> Boom. So you cut... Uh, two-thirds are gone now. Yeah. You're like, a little bit more. Uh... <laughs> then he says, okay, but that's still too many because I know you'll think that you won this war. Gideon. Yeah. And so he says, now have them all drink. And the idea here is the guys who just stuck their face in the water... Versus the guys who scooped it up and drank from their hand. Mm -hmm. So all who scoop it up from their hand will keep. And the guys who just drank straight from it Mm -hmm. will let go. And so 9,700 just drank straight from the water. And Mm -hmm. so they had to leave. And so now 30,000 has been dwindled dwindled down to 300 men. It's Mm -hmm. like impossible. Like 1%. Is that 1% math guy? 
10? I don't know. I don't care. I thought you were a math guy. Okay. So 30000 If If you had to tithe on $30,000, you'd give at least $3,000. Yeah, yeah, So yeah, that's yeah. 10%. Yeah, so yeah. this feels like a 1%. Yeah. I know everything through tithing. Now, all my math is, is it's tethered to tithing. There you go. Good. Which is a good reminder for all you listening. Um, <laughs> we'll have the address to our P.O. box at the end of the show. God says, um, look, it's ridiculous. You're going to take on these guys who are like locusts and with 300 men, but I will save you. And so um, be assured. So it's now it's like, Gideon, are you still going to do that? Gideon, of course, is still hesitant. And, um, and the Lord yeah. wants to, he's still like, oh, oh, yeah. So God says, I want you to go down to the camp of the Midianites and listen. Yes. I'll be with you. If you don't believe that, take Purah. Take your servant, your like probably armor bearer, take him down, sneak down to the camp, and just listen to the first conversation you come across. And he, of course, takes his armor bearer. He doesn't even for a second entertain just going alone. Yeah. And God's like, all right, take Purah. And then they overhear a guy having a dream. Yeah, which is fascinating. So this guy is telling another one of his com- compatriots. Compatriots. Yeah, whatever. I like that. Um, and he's like, uh, I had this dream uh, last night, and a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade immediately is going, that is the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, the man of Israel. God has given his hand, God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. Like, so immediately the other guy's like, oh no. He interprets. We're done. And, and so Gideon's listening, and the idea is that barley is the lesser bread. It's like the lesser uh, prepared troops of Israel, mm-hmm. the lesser leader is going to overwhelm the greater. Yes. And so now... This is all, finally, Gideon gets the fleeces, he Mm -hmm. gets the assurance of God, and he gets this dream to hear, and now he's like, all right, so he goes, sounds the horns, gathers all the guys, um, his 300 guys, and says it's time. In the middle of the night, the Lord kind of gives, and again, I think it shows Gideon's kind of a clever guy, Mm -hmm. and he decides that we're going to attack now without swords. I know, so I love the interpretation of the dream is, uh, it's the sword of Gideon. Right. But the plan is you're going to take a torch in a jar and you're going to take a horn. And that's right. all you're going to carry. You're carrying both in either hand. And so... Uh, no and swords. Then, then he breaks them up into troops of a 100. So you got three surrounding... The valley. The, and and they blow the horns. They shatter the... They have the lights and then they shatter them. Like it's a terrifying... In the middle of the night, it's all silent. It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden you... He- and it's the change of guard. Okay. So the guards are changing... It's all confusion. Everyone's like sleepy. It's they're not expecting an attack. But it's a total jump scare, mm-hmm. right? Like, yes. did they they blew the horns first? Uh, they had the lights, blew the horns, and then put out the lights. So you see the flash and, of lights and, and hear the they, jars break. And they end up screaming. Like so, Gideon says, "Scream for the Lord and for Gideon." Yeah. But they end up screaming, "A sword for the Lord and for Gideon," which is right. even funnier because they don't have swords, right? And so it throws the Midianites totally in confusion. They start yeah. killing each other. Yes. Because it's dark. They don't know. They just got flashed, like, <laughs> jump scared. Yeah, uh, that's true. Like, confusion. all of a sudden this... Because, again, there's no light pollution. So, like, yeah. you just all of a sudden have a ton of torches right. it's surrounding like, the valley. And like, then you snuff them out and... and you're like, ah! Uh. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of confusion. They start killing each other. They flee. 
And so let's let's just for a second. They start to run. So Gideon gets victory here. Everything's mm-hmm. cool. Like the reluctant hero is slowly growing into this now. He's starting to get victory. This is where the story turns, and the idea of like power corrupting people, mm-hmm. you know, is interesting. But how the Lord still uses people. So the Lord's using Gideon, but he's about to become. It feels kind of like a a villain origin story around this point like yes he starts to figure out his gifts and this is where it gets weird he's chasing the kings basically the kings of um of midian well okay so you might be jumping a little bit where am i jumping um oh he has a little he has a little thing with uh ephraim Ephraim. which is so he's from manasseh so ephraim's a little more south Mm -hmm. and so he calls up ephraim he didn't call up ephraim originally uh but he calls up ephraim and he says like come on, come against the Midianites and help us capture them against the Jordan. And so they go out, and then Ephraim kills two of the princes. And then they're, like, really upset with Gideon for not calling him, calling them sooner. And they're like, what, did you just want all the glory for yourself? And this is where Gideon's, like, greases, he, like, greases the wheels a little bit. And he's like, nah, I'm, I'm nothing. You guys killed the princes. I just, like, we're what the, did I do? We're the grapes that... Just fall to the ground. Yeah, you're like, the grapes that are actually picked. Is yeah. kind of the phrase he uses. He's like, uh, "What did we do? Like, you guys, you guys have the victory here." And so that kind of like pacifies Ephraim real quick. But it's like, the beginning though of the tribes like not liking Gideon. Like something about Gideon people don't like. Mm-hmm. And there's something, and he's not receiving like he's not being liked by people. And from the story I get, this bothers him. Well, yeah. Well, I'm thinking like it's Ephraim though, so he's also kind of like. He's working it. He's, yeah, he's working being political. it, and they are like the middle of Israel, and they kind of have like the rights of the firstborn, and so he's kind of like deferential to them. But then he crosses the Jordan to chase after the kings, right? And so he crosses into Sukkoth and then Penuel. Yes, the two and places. So I'm pretty sure this is this territory is the territory of Gad. It's well, it's the half. You go through a little bit of the half tribe Manasseh and the tip. Uh, tip of half tribe of Manasseh, the southern tip, and then most of Gad. Okay. They're the people of God on the other side, and they do not like Gideon. They're like, uh, Gideon asked them, can we have some bread? We're exhausted. We're chasing these two other kings. And they say, no, until you have those kings in your hand, we're not helping you. And so this is where Gideon fully starts to shift. And he's like, well, I'm going to whip you with thorns when I come back, Sukkoth, and I'm going to destroy you, Peniel, and your high tower. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to kill you. And they go on. And so... Okay, so some... so this is what I'm thinking, though. Mm-hmm. This is the difference. So he, with Ephraim, he's a little more deferential. Right. With Gad, he's like just straight up threatening. It's but, happening. They're on the other side. But they're on the other side. It's happening. The, the fear... The, yeah. the thing that Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh were originally afraid of of, like, we are not going to be treated as relatives of the people on the other side of the Jordan, and we built this thing. But also, I think Gideon's probably upset because they were supposed to hold the line. Right. They allowed Midian and the Amalekites to just march right through the territory, cross the Jordan unhindered, and now he's like, I'm not treating you like Ephraim. And to give it some context here, if you do the math, it's at this point... It's been about 200, a little over 200 years mm-hmm. since the allotment. Yes. So th- imagine it's 1976, you know, and you were friends when George Washington 
was uh, put in off it. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? So like you have to, it's helpful to realize that there's some tension and they're not feeling as brotherly as they were 200 years earlier when they were getting allotments, you know? As a quick little yeah. penual, penual is where uh, Jacob wrestled the angel. Yes, before he crossed over mm-hmm. to see his brother, right. Yeah. So it's kind of an uh, interesting place. Well, so he sets up a, a structure of revenge. Like, I'm going to come back and deal with you guys, but then keeps pursuing. Because I think it's still just his own, it's just his 300 men. Yeah. And they're pursuing uh, 15,000. Right. And so I think these towns are going, dude, what, uh, I mean, even if you do catch them, like, right. what are you going to do? And he's following them. They end up getting like 100 miles away in their own territory, the Midianites. Mm-hmm. And it's like, good luck. But Gideon is like tenacious right yes. now. Yes. He's tenacious. He's a confident guy. He's like a bit He's turning. experienced some victory he's, and it's kind of getting to his head. He's becoming slowly a bit of a monster. You know, and uh, his enemies now are the actually are the people of Israel that he'll come back and deal with. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of zeal and not mercy kind of forming up in him. He finally gets there. He, uh, in all, I read there's 120,000 men were basically killed by the Lord and, and these 300 men. Mm-hmm. They surround them in their own place and then they kill them and then they get the kings. Yep. And the kings are like, uh, he tells, Gideon tells his son. Well, he gets the kings, and then he captures them, and then he goes back to those towns. Oh, that's right. And they're still alive. So he has the kings as like a witness, like, look who I have. So he has the kings, and then he's going to punish the Israel, his brothers, for not helping him. Mm-hmm. But he tells his son, kill these kings. And his son is like probably not wanting to get involved. I don't know. His son just is, can't do it. He's too young. He doesn't know what's going on. So the kings make fun of Gideon, mm-hmm. which this is where I get the idea. Gideon's turning into a bit of a monster. Like he cannot handle this disrespect. Mm-hmm. And so um, he then kills the kings himself. Yes. And, uh, and, and then, then he, he also takes like the, the ornaments, the crescent ornaments off their necks, which are like, like moon amulets to ward off evil spirits and so like he's starting to collect like trophies and like he, idolatrous stuff but does he um does he punish these people first like Sukoth, he, he and then it. he does the um he killed the kings after okay so he punishes he goes back and he whips those guys yeah the 77 men the 77 Sukkoth. elders of Sukoth. he whips them beats them and some of the hebrews suggest he just kills them too yeah. then he destroys in penuel so he goes back and he keeps his he, vengeance he destroys the entire town of Penuel. Right. Kills so, all the men of the city. He's a monster now. Yeah. And then he kills these kings. And then he does... It's so It's so weird. The people of Israel are like, you rule over us. Mm-hmm. And he's like, no, I'm not going to be the king. Only the Lord should rule over you. Mm-hmm. So he sounds pious. Like he gets, he gets something. Like he understands this is the Lord's victory. Also, his 300 men, there's no record of them praising God for this amazing... Mm-mm absolutely miraculous victory so they're claiming even as even though it's ridiculous they're claiming victory kind of like but they're saying we worship the lord but then their actions totally betray him because gideon says i'm not going to be uh your king but here's what we can do instead let the lord rule over you but give me all your riches yeah so then they throw in all the amulets they throw in all the ishmaelites like they i guess they decorate their camels with gold things and Mm -hmm. so they Basically, take all these riches. He skims and then makes an ephod. Like yeah, it's a, like seventy-five pounds of like gold, or like a cape or something. Like a maybe it's a 
Well, it's and basically Ephod, like wears the, it. the priestly garment. Yeah, but it's not the priestly garment that God mm. prescribes of ephod, uh, and, not ephod, of uh, linen for the priest. And so we don't know if he wore it or if he just made a statue kind of and put it up in the city. All we know is Israel whored after it. Yes. That's the language. Like they loved it and they served it. And so they weren't worshiping Baal during Gideon, mm-hmm. but they started worshiping this thing he made. Yes. And the confusion, the spiritual confusion is that, oh, let the Lord rule over you. And then he sets up probably a statue of himself mm-hmm. uh, ornamented with his victory. It's crazy. And then he does what? Oh, what well, Deuteronomy says not to do, the, the king, king ought not to do. Yeah, he does exactly. So he's kind of the unofficial first king of Israel, which I think sets the trajectory. You'll see there's not one single good king in the north. Mm-hmm. And it kind of starts right here with Gideon. Yes. Gideon's the first unofficial king. He has 70 sons, like the perfect amount of sons, with tons of wives. He takes concubines. He So they give like a little footnote that he has a concubine in Shechem, which we've talked about. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he named the his concubine's son Abimelech, which means son of my, my dad is king. My dad is king. So, so at a certain point, he started to go, oh, I'm king. Well, he did the perfect thing. I'll be your king without any other responsibility. Mm-hmm. So like, I don't need to negotiate and take responsibility for Israel. I'm not your king, but I'll act like king. Mm-hmm. And so he's probably feeling he doesn't have to know the word of God and read it to the people and make sure the sacrifices, you know what I mean? Like he yeah. takes no responsibility spiritually, but just wants to all the stuff. So... The beauty of it is, and the confusion for us is, this guy is like, his heart going into ministry is totally mixed up and confused. Mm -hmm. Yet God still uses him. Yeah. Because at the end of it, it's God gave them 40 years of rest. So they got seven years of kind of slavery and fear. And then in in exchange, they get 40 years of rest. Mm -hmm. And so at this point, if you do the math, like you got 200 years of rest at the end of Gideon's rest, and you have 53 years of slavery and 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 pain and fear. Oppression, yeah. But when you look at that, it's actually not that bad. 53 to 200. I know. I mean, Uh, God's still really gracious in their idolatry. Like, he's still over-giving them rest Mm -hmm. because as soon as uh, Gideon dies, they make a covenant of all things. God's the covenant God who's promising and keeping... Mm -hmm. And they make a covenant with Baal. Mm Mm-hmm. And, uh, and Gideon had gotten rid of the Baals, but introduced other gods. And then as soon as he dies, they just go back to Baal. And, uh, and his ministry is kind of confusing. Yeah. Yeah, and it'll, and it'll continue on. Like, his sons, like, are not great. They're awful, yeah. So, and they kind of go the way of, like, competing for the kingdom so- of Gideon. So this was a long, uh, a long story about Gideon and with the perfect amount of confusion. Uh-huh. But the things I, I take from it are God's faithful. He's working with imperfect people. And, uh, and for all of us who long to serve the Lord, you do have to watch your, um, your selfish ambition, your own desire for revenge, mm-hmm. your desire for being important. And we got to always think what God says about us is more important that w- than what others are saying about us. But uh, praise God, he still brings the rest through an imperfect judge, Gideon. Yeah. Mm. It also makes you appreciate the work of Jesus as our, as our as ultimate a, judge and savior yeah. 
Oh, man. It's so much better. Because there's no confusion with Jesus. Yeah. It's like, is he a good guy? Is he a bad guy? No, he's all good. He's all good. All right. Our New Testament reading for today is John chapter 5, verse 16 through 47. Now, we kind of covered 16 and 17 last episode just because it kind of yeah completed I mean, the, the storyline. The, the two things he gets accused of are, are true. He's Sabbath breaking because he mm-hmm. makes the Sabbath. Yeah. And he's calling uh, God his father. He's blaspheming. Yeah. Like nowhere in Jewish literature would anyone even say God's name. Like they don't even say Yahweh. They come up with ways of, you know, mm-hmm. calling him Jehovah because you're using like vowels from his name or whatever. You're doing all these things. And so the fact that Jesus is calling him Father is the ultimate in being familiar and comfortable with God of the universe. Mm-hmm. It's the opposite of fear and honor and everything they do. But this sets up, John's setting up that um, Jesus is there in humble service as an exalted, um, st- with exalted status. Like, And that's what they're getting. They're actually understanding that. Yeah. And that's why they're mad, because they don't believe it. Mm-hmm. There's no way. And then um, I think... That leads you into Jesus giving this, um, as the Jews were seeking to kill him because of these things, he goes on about authority. So this, mm-hmm. this next yes. section is, I think it's really, um, it kind of, the whole section is about authority and how you get authority, you know, and usually you get authority through um, a witness or a testimony and so Jesus starts off with, there's unity. Like, me and the Father are related. We are one. Mm-hmm. And we do what the other one says. Yes. Yeah. Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. So, like, God has this power, has entrusted his power to the Son. The Son is here to give you life. So, believe. Yeah, like, this is a pretty strong passage for... Yeah. Like making a case of Jesus and God are one. Yes. They are the same. They have the same authority. And like even the the Father in verse 27, it's the Father has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Right. So it's like the Father doesn't judge. He actually gives it to the Son. Like it's fascinating. And at one point he's like, um, I don't know if I'm jumping the gun, yeah. where he talks about John... Yeah, I think that's the next section. Let me, let me just finish with this. Um, Jesus is the voice of God. Like, he's the authority mm-hmm. to execute judgment. It's, it's, there's no doubt. Like, Jesus is leaving no doubt that everyone knows, I am the, the judge. I am the Savior. Mm-hmm. I have come to deliver you. I am sent from God because I am God. Mm-hmm. And so the natural question is, like, what... What authority? Oh, he does say something about resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Like he is, he's the God who will raise everyone. Mm-hmm. Like everyone's going to come out of the tomb, hear his voice. And so it's like we're all created to live, not die. Mm-hmm. So you all will be raised up. And then once you're raised, you'll be sent to life or you'll be sent to judgment. Judgment, yep. So like everybody's going to be resurrected according to Jesus in John chapter five, but then the uh, the answer the the natural question is like by what authority? How can you say these things? Mm-hmm. We don't see you this way. You need to have 
two people testify to a thing before it, for it to be true. Yeah. And you're just saying these things. Who else can validate this? And then Jesus gives like a really solid argument on all the different um, ways he's validated by God, not by man. And he yes. does have a man. So yeah. his man is John, John the Baptist. Baptist. Yeah. So his first I thought that was really cool. Yeah, he starts with John as a witness. Mm -hmm. John came as a shining light and he announced mm -hmm. that. So that's the testimony. But that's not the only testimony. Yeah, it's the father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. Well, that's what he's referring to his baptism. Mm -hmm. God himself spoke, this is my son. Mm -hmm. So there's a witness. And then the spirit is witness. And the spirit was the dove. It gave witness to me. But then my works, my works give witness to me. You've seen me heal. You've yeah. seen me raise up. Like, And then he, he drops the ultimate witness yes. for them is Moses. Well, yeah, he comes around to, uh, I love that too. He's like, Moses gave witness to me. I don't need you to give me authority. <laughs> like in this world, we need other people to give us yeah. authority, right? We need people to say, okay, you're the boss now, or we'll testify that you, you're the leader. Mm -hmm. Jesus says, I don't need you. I have Father, I have Holy Spirit, I have John the Baptist, I have my works, and I have Moses yes. who spoke of me. And this is where he really sucker punches them. Because they're never thinking of, like Moses of, in this way. But mm -hmm. Moses talked about him. Moses was the lawgiver. And you didn't even believe Moses. Yeah. He's like, I love this. In 45, he says, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you. Moses, on whom you've set your hopes. For if you believed Moses, you would have believed me. For he wrote of me. Yeah. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? And that's the beauty. Like He finally comes down to... This is about unity of, like, Jesus Christ is unified with God the Father. He's testified to by God the Father and given authority from God the Father. Mm -hmm. And if you even respected the testimony of Moses, you'd realize, after reading Moses, you're like, oh, God, I haven't loved you with my, all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Oh, we need a Savior. And so you'd recognize Jesus saying, I'm here to love God and to love others. But you didn't believe Moses. You thought Moses brought the law and it condemned you. Mm-hmm. And you think you can keep it. Repent and believe. You can't keep it and then believe that Jesus can. So God himself gives these uh, witnesses and authority to his son. Jesus proclaims it and I think hits the original audience like right where they live. And if we're being honest, also where we live. Mm -hmm. Like you need proof that, that Jesus is who he says he is. Mm -hmm. It's there. Yeah. For those who have ears. Um, and just look at your life. You need a savior. Yeah. That was quick, powerful, and easy. Yeah. All right. All right. Today, we will finish off Psalm 57, uh, verse 7 through 11. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Boom, you've just been fed by ravens. Go in peace and serve the Lord. We will talk to you next time.